you're listening to a podcast by Hipfi Hype, where we discuss new ideas around housing, sustainability and climate action to explore ways to support the sustainable growth of our cities and regions. I'm Laura Phillips and I'm the Head of Urban Advocacy at Hipfi Hype. Hipfi Hype is an entrepreneurial group of businesses that are working to resolve more sustainable, more socially responsible and more intuitive solutions to our cities. Passive House is a building methodology considered to be the most rigorous energy and health-based design and construction standard in the world. It is a proven scientific standard that results in a building consuming up to 90% less heating and cooling energy compared to conventional buildings. Through Passive House design principles, improved insulation and high-quality windows, the Passive House standard provides for year-round thermal and acoustic comfort and the continuous supply of filtered clean air. Today I sit down with Liam Wallace, director of Hip B Hype, and Claire Parry, Better Buildings Lead at Hip B Hype and founding chair of Passive House Australia, to discuss how Passive House can deliver healthy, comfortable and resilient housing. So what are the benefits of living in a Passive House? Well, primarily Passive House is about delivering building comfort and also in that it's also focused on well-being, air quality, but energy efficiency is one of the best outcomes. So you know, having the experience now of having lived in a passive house for up to a year, I can say that it's the air quality, it's the stability of temperature. The energy efficiency has been absolutely fantastic and that's being thrown home during COVID. There's a huge number of benefits and it's absolutely the antidote to everything. Uh, you know, historically every house I've lived in has been exactly the opposite. And Liam, you live in a, in a house in a recent building, the Davison Collaborative. Certainly you've enjoyed some of the benefits of, of those design principles. Yeah, look, we, we designed Davison Street about sort of three to four years ago now, and I think we, we had ambitions to, to design and build an incredibly low-energy home. I think at the time, we just didn't really have the understanding of what, what sort of passive house was, what it meant, you know, in, in terms of cost, really. So what, what would it cost us to go that extra mile to, to design and certify in accordance with passive house? And, and at that point in time, we really didn't have that knowledge, so we chose not to go to that extent but you know building the building out of sips and and seeking to you know maximize air tightness ourselves I guess given that we built that project ourselves you know Pete Chris and I were out there on weekends um, sealing up all the gaps <laughs> ourselves so we've got a really really strong understanding of of you know how how, how that side of I guess the passive house standard works and 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 um and and you know those thermal bridging elements and really seeking to isolate the outside from the inside so whilst we didn't quite get to sort of the certified passive house standard we we definitely kind of achieved a a really really high quality outcome Mm -hmm. and it sounds like in performance you're pretty much there you just haven't really examined it in quite the same way, but it, it sounds like the performance is pretty close. Yeah, look, like I, I guess anecdotally, yeah, that's that's like our our experience through lockdown, living at home, you know, day to day basis, seeing the home perform, the consistency of the internal temperature despite what's going on outside, you know, the benefit of actively kind of ventilating the home, so having that filtered fresh air on a kind of on a daily basis, um, it's really noticeable. Myself, you know, being kind of an asthmatic as well, I get knocked around a little bit when we get the big northerly winds down here in Melbourne and the pollen kind of gets up in the air and um, being able to just close the house off and get that kind of filtered fresh air um, and not not be as impacted as kind of I once was on those days is is actually really noticeable. Yesterday was one of those days. (laughs) 
as well as comfortable living spaces and, and reduced emissions, the passive house provides financial benefits. With reduced energy use comes lower energy costs. Bank Australia also offers, for example, a reduced interest mortgage for energy efficient properties. What do you think is required to grow the consumer awareness and, and the market momentum for demand to deliver this standard of building? I firmly believe, and you know, I was probably guilty of this as well for most of my life, is that we have such a low expectation of how our buildings perform. So we're not really that well-versed in building performance in Australia, and most of us just simply aren't aware that a building shouldn't require a massive boost of energy in winter to keep warm, or in summer we don't have to have air conditioning on all the time. Yeah, I think just basic awareness. So being taught to expect more from our buildings is first step you know we we shouldn't live in tents it's a really really good point because i think there's kind of prevailing notions of how to heat and cool a home in australia you know there's gas ducted heating as an example been around for ages it's the one of the cheapest forms of heating a kind of standard home and yet we've all kind of got experiences of like gas ducted heating as an example switching on blowing around a bunch of dusty air you know it's quite quite dry kind of doesn't really feel that great you know on the flip side you've got air conditioning systems that you know when they switch on they'll blast you with cold air and then they switch off and you know a poorly insulated home 10 minutes later is boiling that they're not very comfortable and i built a home a few years ago now and for my parents actually and we installed hydronic heating and we didn't go to, you know, the, the effort of necessarily, you know, having a super high-performance external uh, envelope, although we did, we did kind of beef up the insulation a little bit, but by no means as much as Passive House. But just even something as simple as, say, hydronic heating as a heating system and, and that and the way that made you feel, so heating you up from the inside, relying on kind of natural convection currents within the home to, to disperse heat more naturally... And, and having that experience just kind of brought home the tangible benefit of seeking to, you know, seeking a better outcome. And yes, hydronic heating is, I guess, the capital cost of, say, hydronic heating is more expensive, but the experience over time is significantly heightened. So I think there's, in some of these concepts, there's, you know, there's, there's the cost benefit and that health and wellness side to the cost benefit needs to be factored in, I think. Uh, particularly when you're building a home. Yeah, I mean, most of my initial, most of my first clients when I started doing Passive House were chasing, there were two broad categories. There were other people that were chasing and like a, a remedy to something that was wrong. Like they had particular, you know, allergies or asthma or something. They were looking for a healthy response or they were expats and they just went, I've never been so cold as I have been in an Australian house. So, you know, that level of education, people are either seeking that out or they know better and, yeah, that we've got a way to go. There's a big cultural shift, I think, in the way that we appreciate buildings. And I suppose on that advocacy level, you know, the, the growing momentum of, of open house days where people can come in and experience those kind of private properties is doing a huge amount to kind of broaden that public awareness, whether it's open house Melbourne Sustainable Living Festival, Sustainable House Day, really trying to, I mean, obviously the residents are very passionate advocates themselves, and they're the ones who are really kind of uh, doing that consumer education piece. Of course, Passive House can be applied to new and existing buildings, it's not just new housing. How can a freestanding dwelling or an apartment be retrofitted to meet the Passive House standards? Well, there's a few key principles in Passive House, and 
Every building is different and it's it's very much a, I guess, a bespoke solution for, for retrofit. So you have to really look at what you've got, address what needs to be, you know, perhaps boosted, but then other things might need replacing. So air tightness is an easy win, just going around and sealing things. But then, of course, if you're doing that, making sure your ventilation strategy is pretty robust. So retrofitting a ventilation system, but you do need a minimum level of air tightness for that to work efficiently, so it's a bit sort of chicken and egg. Also, windows are the worst performing element in almost every building. So really looking at what you've got, making sure that your window frames are up to scratch. And inevitably, they're probably going to need replacing unless you've got a good timber frame. Window films can be a good start instead of replacing glass. So, the, you know, there's, there's this strategy in Passive House for retrofits that enables you to do a step-by-step retrofit. So you might program an upgrade over a number of years, and you can do that in apartments or houses or any type of building, really. But it's about taking steps in a logical sequence and not doing something that actually will undermine a future decision. So coming up with a strategy and a plan to do something. But there are a few easy wins off the, off the bat. And of course, it's not just housing. Passive house can apply to all buildings. What effect would broad-scale application of passive house standards have on reducing the built environment-based emissions? Pretty substantial, actually. So, you know, in the introduction, you mentioned the energy efficiency potential of 90% reduction in energy use and what that could do to, you know, the cost of running buildings. So, you know, shifting buckets of money from places where we could avoid spend into places that you know are screaming out for funding but also you know making our grid a bit more stable reducing the need for upgrades in the grid we've had projects pursue passive house purely to avoid putting in substations which you know save them hundreds of thousands of dollars so there's a lot that could be you know there's a lot of beneficial areas there yeah worth pursuing and I suppose what I mean, the, the current level of, of where our building code currently is and what we are building, what, what current challenges do you see there in terms of barriers to reducing emissions across the built environment? Well, I think we've talked about that education piece. There's also there's a performance gap and there's a lack of a systems view on things. So, you know, in our code, we have this segmented view on you should make a building you should seal a building up but then there's a whole different section on ventilation and they don't really talk to each other particularly well or that they both you know if you work with these elements uh, together you'll get a better and I guess more optimized and streamlined solution than if you you know just go for boosting ventilation and making a building really airtight if you sort of you know calm down a bit and approach it in a systemic sense you can get an optimized outcome that doesn't just result in everything being turned up to you know the extreme i think we're seeing change coming through the system at the moment i think we're we're seeing like some some leading projects that are that are committing to sustainability kind of performing really well in a difficult sales environment so i think i think that's sending a really strong signal to the market more broadly that that people are interested in what sustainability has to offer not only you know in the sense of a broader kind of you know personal responsibility let's say but also some of the tangible kind of benefits of sustainability so like you say reduced energy costs and and kind of more comfortable living environments i think they're they're they really do come hand in hand i'm sort of interested like from a passive house perspective because i know i know it played out in our decision not necessarily to pursue passive house but just in terms of like the quality required 
to achieve certification, so particularly on the air tightness requirement. There's a lot of talk out in the industry that sort of, you know, air tightness requirements need to be exceptionally high and that if if kind of external envelopes are perforated, like say by a, by an electrician, you're, you're building paper gets gets punctured by a plumber or an electrician that you can end up kind of with embedded weaknesses that when you come to do your blower door tests at the end of the project you you sort of you sort of compromised and you sort sort of in a sense increasing risk like i'm interested like claire you 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 were involved in the student housing project down at monash university but that that was a large commercial scale project um, that delivered passive house fully certified like how's your experience in that context how would you respond to that sort of question around well, you know, passive house just presents too much risk. It's too the benchmark's too high for us to be able to deliver. Yeah, air tightness is a pretty contentious one, and there's there's a bit of chat in the industry and in Australia in particular, or you know, milder climates where we're a lot of people are talking about may, like maybe the air tightness requirement in passive house is too much, and so we could relax it. And I'm not really sure where to take that, but. I guess in, in terms of risk overall, it's about there's a there's a huge number of areas where this occurs in any building, you know, like there's and I guess airtiness is one of those ones where the risk of not delivering it, you know, it's slightly more slightly less efficient or slightly less comfortable. Mm-hmm. And it's probably imperceptible if you, you know, sort of talk about those numbers. But you know, risk in other areas probably results in, you know, actual, you know, fires, for example, or electric shocks, you know. But I guess managing, it's just about managing that risk from early in design and making sure that it is well understood by everybody. And that's something that, you know, air tightness has come out of nowhere and it's new for everyone and for potentially the materials we're using to, you know, deliver it are all new. They're, you know, new materials, 100% extra cost. We wouldn't have put them in before. Yeah, there's a whole lot of like brand new stuff in there. But, you know, as is shown on these large buildings, it's totally achievable as long as it's addressed pretty early and pretty holistically. How could passive house standards be incorporated into our current building regulations to improve the standard of housing that's being delivered across Australia? Yeah, I think this is pretty exciting, actually, that all the elements of passive house are in the building code. And they've kind of, they've been there in sort of reasonably weak forms in various places for a while. Bits of them are kind of, you know, not well enforced or not well laid out. So... You know, air tightness was kind of there in a really qualitative sense, which meant that, of course, nobody did anything about it. Thermal bridging, again, was sort of a read between the lines thing because it was, you know, only read between the lines. Also, nobody did anything about it. Those things have been strengthened in the recent code. One thing I think that's becoming clear to, you know, large swathes of the industry and also regulators is what opportunity it presents if we do do these things right. So... You know, for example, if we started to build social housing to a better standard, there's this massive flow on, you know, multiple things that happen once we do that in terms of, you know, benefit to, you know, as I mentioned before, all those benefits to energy costs, but also, you know, social housing, you know, well, welfare costs, the actual health and wellbeing impacts and the, you know, security of tenancy sort of impacts on those tenants. So I think we're getting there. It's just you know, that, that actual robust system that makes sure that we deliver those things is coming slower than we'd like. 
yeah, that boosting the base level of the quality, you know, and the operational cost savings over time, particularly in that that affordable housing sector, is is critical. You know, like if if we can save X thousands, hundreds of thousands of dollars through an operational phase, we've got more money to reinvest in more social housing. It just makes sense. It makes absolutely no sense to be just pouring that money down the drain. I know having just spent the last week in hospital with with our kind of first child being born, it's it's a great hospital, great institution, but having spent a week in there in the newborn ward, dealing with a building with single glazing with a central heating and cooling system that was either way too hot or way too cold. And you're talking about a, a newly born baby, you know, with, with an ability to deal with temperature variance that's, that's diminished from, from a normal kind of adult. And yet, like the hospital, that base building can't get it right. Like I'd hate to think how much money they're pumping uh, out through that single glazing into the kind of surrounding streets a huge amount of money not to mention the fact that you know newborns need consistent temperature to have better health outcomes so you look at like that hospital context you look at aged care context where you know narrower temperature bands are incredibly important and linked to kind of better health outcomes for for elderly and it all starts with a, a really high quality building fabric yeah I think it plays out in a lot of different building types, you know, schools, yeah, so many, absolutely huge. I was blown away, like, just, just seeing that episode from Craigory Castle and seeing how hot those classrooms were getting in, in, that, in that particular example. Like, absolutely ridiculous. And we expect our kids to have good education outcomes and we put them in classrooms that get up to kind of 40 degrees in temperature. Yeah. Well, and that's just the easy, you know, the easily perceptible things that are wrong with classrooms as well. Like, there's CO2 issues, you know. Most of these rooms pretty dumb, to be honest. Like, you know, in the terms that they're super simple and they absolutely do nothing. <laughs> to enhance the well-being and the learning outcomes for students. So, yeah, there's, there's so much, so many benefits that could come out of it and it's super well-established, so we just need those dots to be joined, I think, yeah. yeah. I think, like, post-occupancy testing as well, you know, like, for us, having just finished Davison Street, you know, with yourself coming aboard to Versus High recently, like, I think having now the technical capability to really kind of analyse these buildings that we're building and kind of use that data to build the case, you know, for the average consumer to sort of help them justify, you know, the expenditure that's required to, to upgrade their home or to build better from the beginning and, and, and be able to more tangibly kind of talk to the cost-benefit of that process and, like, overlay things like, I guess, Bank Australia offering kind of subsidised um, home loans to better-performing buildings and just, again, adding that... A, extra sort of incentive to build better at a, at a base consumer level it's, it's pretty it's pretty exciting time really yeah I think that that data point like that whole feedback loop that there is a lot of data in the industry there's actually a lot of noise in the industry about what sustainability looks like and building performance but yeah we're not we're not fantastic at delivering it and yeah plenty of buildings I've worked on in the past without a concerted effort to actually you know design there's a lot of effort that goes into design there's a lot of I guess robust conversation that goes on during construction that means that some of that gets diluted and then at the end of the day the building doesn't necessarily perform and 
yeah, we've got to put all those pieces together. But this feedback loop that we're creating, I'm pretty excited about. The long-term benefits in terms of financial, environmental and social are extremely clear. It's just in the short term, as you say, Claire, just joining those dots to make sure it's actually delivered and then having that backed up by post-occupancy reviews and studies to make sure that it is performing in the way that it was intended. Thank you for joining me.